0: chief food genius and founder of the Food Literacy Center, a nonprofit that inspires kids to eat their veggies and understand why. Raising Kale will chronicle the stories of food thought leaders that include chefs, farmers, doctors, leading experts, connecting them back to the communities that are building resilience around a fractured food system today, our food is linked to obesity, climate change, workers' rights, and so much more. It's time we understand the story behind the food we eat and the impact our food choices have on our health, the environment, and our economy. It's time to start raising kale.
1: Eaters are inundated with so much information around food and nutrition and what's healthy and what's not, and I think it's It can be very confusing. So, you know, we try to create as much awareness as possible so that people feel like, you know, they can take a breath.
0: (laughs) In an era of fake news, information about our food is not immune. Myths and misinformation abound. We learn more about our food from social influencers than scientists and reporters. For example, 21% of respondents in one study said they get their nutrition advice from social media. At a time when rates of hunger are rising, farmland is disappearing and over half of Americans are sick from their diets, we can't afford to get this wrong. Lucky for us, there are thoughtful journalists breaking through the noise. Danielle Nuremberg of Food Tank, a nonprofit delivering stories about our food system, goes to communities around the globe to learn firsthand what's really happening. She and her team report to consumers and help make sense of the complex problems our food system faces. Danielle is the president and co-founder of Food Tank. The nonprofit focuses on building a global community for safe, healthy, nourished eaters. In other words, they keep consumers informed about issues affecting our food. Danielle has traveled the world to learn about solutions to our broken food system. And I'm so pleased that she's joining us today to share what she's learned. Welcome to Raising Kale, Danny.
1: Amber, so nice to hear your voice. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Absolutely. So the first and most important question, because I know that your job takes you around the globe, um, where are you calling us from today?
1: Oh, Amber, I have been sidelined by so many of our friends and peers because of uh, coronavirus. I had many trips planners. I was going to be in your neck of the woods. I'm not going to Italy. I'm not going to Israel. (sighs) All of my plans have been thwarted. So I am home and um trying not to go stir crazy like so many of us. Oh, man.
0: Yeah, that is definitely, you know, and and certainly it's an issue that um, even is affecting our food system.
1: And in such big ways, and I don't think people understand that, you know, whether it's farmers who are trying to transport food or it's food service workers who don't have paid sick leave. This is really an issue. No matter how rich you are, somebody has to get that food to you. And, you know, if you're a fan of going to restaurants, you want the people who work in restaurants to be healthy and and, and not showing up at work because they couldn't take a day off because, uh, you know, that if they do, they won't get paid. So we really need to Sort of put the politics uh, on our plates, I think, a little bit more when it comes to issues like these because they're very cross-cutting. This just doesn't affect, you know, older people or, you know, kids. This is something that really affects us all, and and the the effects, the economic and social impacts of something like easily spread disease like uh, COVID-19, you know, is going to have ramifications all across. Uh, the food system.
0: Absolutely, and are what are you hearing through some of your, you know, shared channels, and you have um, discussion groups around the uh, around the globe.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think people like all of us, everyone's just very nervous and kind of waiting for things to happen. It's such a an uncertain time, and I think there's so much noise, and and people don't know who to trust, and it's that's why I think it's really important to go to websites. That you trust, like the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, or uh, WHO, the World Health Organization. Don't just read any news source on this. You know, follow trusted news sources. It's it's really a good reminder that fake news is out there in a lot of different forms, and we have to be vigilant about the sources that we're using so that we can all maintain. You know, we have to be calm during crises like this.
0: And so since we're already talking a little bit about the work that you do, let's talk a little bit about Food Tank for (laughs) folks who may not have heard of it before. And, you know, what is it about Food Tank that sort of puts you in the center of issues like this?
1: Yeah, I mean, Food Tank, uh, we started in 2013 and we're still a pretty small and scrappy organization. But our mission is a really simple one. It's to highlight stories of, Hope and success in the food system, both internationally and domestically, and so that means we. Um, the, the ways we do that is, uh, are, are, are you know very diverse. We have a very robust news website uh, where we um, post only original content, uh, as many as uh, articles uh, as three times per day. Uh, we host um, events, big summits, smaller discussions. Um, in places like New York City or Sacramento, where we were a few years ago, um, LA, uh, Chicago, and, and try to have as many blunt uh, discussions as possible on stage. We bring everyone from food justice advocates to corporate executives to tackle some of the the most pressing uh, issues in food and agriculture, whether it's food loss and food waste, or you know the work that you do around food literacy. Um, Uh, the the need to empower both youth and and others uh, across the food chain. Um, So we really try to bring as many people together so that we can have what we like to call uncomfortable conversations and get people really talking and understanding that these issues are not always black and white, but they can be very gray and there's a need for nuance and civility, which I think is something we've lost when we talk about a lot of political issues. Um, we, we put out books and reports a few years ago. We put a uh, report out on uh, true cost accounting in the food system and the role of family farmers around the globe. Uh, we came out with a book recently called Nourish Planet, which identifies some of the solutions for making sure um, that we can find ways to alleviate hunger and obesity, food loss, inequality, um, Etc. So uh, we we try to meet people where they are. If if they're not you know into reading a book, we have a really great uh, social media platform. If they're you know more interested in in reading the newspaper, we focus a lot on, on creating op eds and content for other publications. So we really just try to create awareness and show, uh, you know whether it's a chef or a farmer or. Uh, moms and dads that there are solutions to these issues. Policymakers, for example, are a big focus of what we do. We hold events on Capitol Hill to help create awareness and educate congressional staffers and congressional members about, you know, different issues. And so that they're not only talking about food when the farm bill is up for renewal or, you know, when we're talking about SNAP or food stamps, but that they understand the role of technology may or may not play in in agriculture or they understand, you know, issues around food as medicine. So trying to reach as many audiences as possible and, and with really clear, concise information that is easy to understand.
0: And, and you touched on this a little bit earlier um, surrounding the virus, but there, there's a need for this kind of information about our food system uh, because there is so much noise and it's really difficult for a consumer to find good information that they can trust.
1: Yeah, I mean, eaters are inundated with so much information around Uh, food and nutrition and what's healthy and what's not. And I think it's, it can be very confusing. So, you know, we try to create as much awareness as possible so that people feel like, you know, they can take a breath. (laughs) And and if they go to food tanks, they're going to be able to find what they need or at least write us, you know, we get emails from all over the world, but a lot of people are just confused about different terms. And, And so again, trying to cut through some of that, that confusion is, is important to us. And, you know, the The thing about that is we we all have to eat, and, and hopefully most of us are doing it at least a couple of times a day. I'm, you know, a big snacker, so I'm doing it more than a couple of times a day. But, you know, we all uh, are in this together when it comes to food. We all have to eat, and so, you know, sort of – creating a community around that is important to us.
0: And providing information that isn't simply one-sided because there is a lot of information out there that has that angle as well. And so um, ensuring that all voices are present.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was really important when we started Food Tank. I mean, I obviously... You know, anyone who knows me kind of, you know, and within the first few minutes knows my political views personally, but as as president of Food Tank, we try to be non-biased and non-partisan because we just feel like it's really important. And, and having, you know, those silos that exist in the food system hasn't done any of us any good. We, when we separate you know, uh, from one another and we don't come together on these issues. We 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 can't get anywhere. So it's really important for us to to help bring people together no matter, you know, what political background they're from, no matter what socioeconomic or cultural background. We really want to get different groups of people talking and, and create that space and, and break down those silos. Uh, and, You know, this is just something that's part of our ethos. It's It's what we wanted to do from the beginning because – as you mentioned, there's kind of a need for that. There are so many great food and agriculture organizations in this space but some of them are either very left or very right. There are very few that are sort of trying to, to take these issues on from the center.
0: Yeah. And it's hard work. So we, we're grateful that you're doing that. And, I also, yeah, I want to talk um, about you, actually, the the person behind this amazing uh, organization and kind of back up to, you know, you grew up in rural Missouri. Um, and when you became a teenager, you were kind of over agriculture. You wanted to get out. Um, after college, you enrolled in the Peace Corps. But you actually ended up um, going to the Dominican Republic and falling in love with farms. So talk about that Oh my journey. God, Jeff. Yeah, my
1: mom still thinks it's very funny because I grew up... Up around farmers, you know, farm kids. I, I, to to be very blunt, I thought they were dumb. I thought farmers were stupid. I thought they were destroying the environment. I wanted nothing to do with that. I ran, you know, as fast as I could (laughs) away to college to, to get away from all that. And then, as you said, became a Peace Corps volunteer, and kind of realized very early on it wasn't like an epiphany. It wasn't like oh, you know a light bulb went on over my head, but I was just like, oh, I'm so dumb. I'm the stupid one. Like, these farmers are doing amazing things. You know, I was riding around on motorcycles with extension workers and visiting, you know, different farms and um, seeing how farmers grow cacao and raise bees and do all these amazing things. And just realized that, you know, farmers aren't destroying the environment. They're, they're For the most part, they're trying to, you know, keep it – uh, healthy, so they can pass it on to their kids, and just learning all these things really sort of, you know, uh, made me realize how dumb I was, and, and made me want to tell those stories about farmers and, and what I was seeing, especially in, in some, you know, parts of the global south or less um, less developed places, and, and share those uh, as much as I could. So right after these Corps, I went to graduate school um, at Tufts University, and. Um, got a master's in agriculture and food and environment from the school of nutrition, science, and policy. So it was just a really good, I I think Peace Corps just helped me, you know, realize again how dumb I was and also figure out what I wanted to do. And and I'm one of the few people I know who actually gets to use her degree uh, in a way (laughs) that that makes me happy. I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do. Um, And not many people get to say that. And so, you know, like this week when I'm having a hard week because Coronavirus has, you know, uh, messed with all my travel plans. I have to remember, like, I'm I'm very lucky. I get to do what I what I always wanted to do.
0: Yeah, very much so. And and travel has been a consistent theme. You went um, after. Uh, graduate school. You were living in D.C. You were working for World Watch Institute. Um, And you headed up a pretty amazing program there where you got to visit farms and um, farmers in sub-Saharan Africa in over 30 countries. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah, at that
1: time, I visited over 30 countries and interviewed hundreds and hundreds of farmers and scientists and researchers and others in the field and really got a sense of, of what they were doing, especially at that time when the food and financial crisis began. There was, a you know, what we were seeing in the news or reading in newspapers and, and journals was really bad news coming out of, of sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, we certainly saw some of that, you know, poverty and and you know very extreme hunger but i was also seeing projects that if they had a little bit more support or a little bit more research behind them or a little bit more investment that they could be really replicated and scaled up and out in in different ways and so again that project that we started called nourishing the planet was just a way to sort of shine a spotlight on on what those projects looked like and what they needed and that was really where where Food Tank was born at least in our minds with my co-founder Bernie Pollack to you know create this this organization that you know could tell could tell the good things that were happening that could you know shift shift the paradigm a little to focus on on the good news rather than all the bad news.
0: And can you share some of the good news that you saw there?
1: I mean it was just so many projects. Like I would I remember visiting a group of of women in uh, Niger who Had with support from um, the uh, International Center for Research in the Semi Arid Tropics, the long, long name, but they're (laughs) called ICRASAT. They had started a a garden cooperative where they were growing fruit trees and um, vegetables and some other crops, and they were using solar drip irrigation to grow those things. So it it was pretty, you know, a unique system. Um, Niger is one of the poorest countries in the world and, you know, is affected by drought and, you know, political corruption and a whole range of things. But these women, you know, when I asked them, you know, how their lives had changed before they started this garden where they were working all together, they each made, you know, maybe $300 a year. And, And obviously that's, you know, very extreme poverty. But since they had all started working together and learned, you know, the skills, like not just growing um, native plants in a sustainable way, but learning how to fix the pump and, you know, clear the drip lines and do all the other things that they needed to do to make the farm run efficiently, they were now making about $1,500 a year. And Mm -hmm. so just seeing that sort of incredible transformation, you know, I asked them how their how their lives had changed, and they said, you know I could buy my husband a bicycle so he could get where he needed to go I could send my kids to school. I'm fatter now you know these women weren't fat, but they were you know well nourished probably for the first time in their lives and and so it was just really incredible and if you know more research institutions were working directly with farmers like that I, I think there could be a huge huge transformation and and empowering people to do these things on their own and so that, that was just one story, but there are so many others, you know, of, of just seeing how, how if there's support, how things can change. Um, a couple years ago, I went to Zambia and, and visited with a nonprofit who was working with farmers to distribute tools, and, they, could, you know, some of these tools seem pretty um, basic to a lot of us now, I guess, but, you know, things like corn grinders or bags that helped them store their crops you know for more than a year things like that just very simple tools right or very simple technologies but the the impact of those very simple things was really really transformational you know when farmers can save a crop from one year to the next or wait for higher prices or women spend less time grinding corn, they can do other things that make money or they can spend time, you know, learning different skills. And, and so there are all sorts of good stories like that that don't get enough attention.
0: Absolutely. And this continues to be one of your big passions today, women in agriculture. Um, and do you ever get the opportunity to return to some of these projects that you've seen and, and see what they're like a few years later?
1: Yeah, it's happened a few times. Unfortunately. I mean, I try to keep in touch. That's the, the beauty of Facebook and email and, <laughs> and all these other social media platforms. Yeah, uh, but no, not as often as I would like to. There are lots of projects uh, and people I'd like to go see again.
0: Absolutely. And um, what other sort of fire in the belly do you see um, with these women? Are they starting their own projects? Are they um, working in support with other local nonprofits? What seems to be the trend?
1: for, For sure. I mean, the amazing thing about women is, you know, I've always said this, and I come off a little bit sexist, but, like, women farmers are usually the hardest working people in every village or town or, you know, city where there are urban gardens that I, I visit. It's just women, like, work so, um, you know, hard, and, and they, they do so much with often very little. Um, one project I visited in, in Ghana was a group of women who had started um uh, raising dairy cows and uh, they were getting some support from a big uh, nonprofit, profit uh, Heifer International which I'm sure a lot of your listeners might know about um, but they uh, you know sort of did this behind their husband's backs. they were like <laughs> you know we're going to go ahead and do this we're going to make yogurt we're going to sell it to some of the schools in the area um, and you know we're going to do our own thing, and they they said at first their husbands were super mad at them that they couldn't believe that they'd done this and without asking them. But then they were seeing like, oh hey, the kids have better you know school supplies. They can go to the doctor now. So I think you know women often convince you know men and, and, and elders in their community that something is good by just by showing them. And and you know when they realized when those elders and men realized that, you know, it's profitable and, you know, their their wives and their daughters and their sisters are happier, that, you know, I, I think they, they see the value in it. I, I, I you know, I, I focus a lot of my time and my head around, like, you know, women in the food system and 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 what needs to happen to make sure there's less inequality and more equality. But I, I think a big part that gets overlooked is that we also need to educate men and boys. We need to create awareness. They need to see the value that's inherent and, and women and girls without, you know, it, it shouldn't matter that women are making more money <laughs> in, uh, for men to value them. They should just value them as they would value anyone else. So I, I think that a lot of more education needs to happen when we're talking women, you know, creating equality for women means, you know, making sure that men and, and boys are part of that conversation.
0: Absolutely. And another thing you've learned from farmers in your travels is that, uh, Farmers, for example, here in California could learn some things about resilience to issues that are somewhat new here that have been going on in the global south far longer. For example, um, natural disasters like drought.
1: Absolutely. It's funny. um, I I call them natural disasters, too. But often when I think about them, I'm like, they're not so natural. So Mm. many of the things that we think are, you know, oh, gosh, a drought happened or, you know forest fires or whatever, those are things that are, are definitely human human made. <laughs> and yeah. and so they're kind of unnatural disasters in so many ways. But yeah, I think, you know, we often think we're 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 so sort of cocky and arrogant in the United States and we think we have so much to teach the rest of the world. And I think what we're understanding now with um, issues around climate change and Uh, And what you mentioned, drought, is that we have a lot to learn from farmers in other parts of the world about how they're addressing those things. And one thing that I'm very interested in is the role that indigenous and traditional crops can play in creating the foods of the future. For example, in sub-Saharan Africa, millets and sorghums are, you know, often looked down upon as poor people's foods, Mm. but they're very nutritious they're very resilient. There's now a growing market for them in other parts of the world, so they can be very profitable. But, you know, getting farmers who were, you know, convinced by development agencies in the 80s and 90s to grow crops for export, getting them to grow those traditional crops again, it, you know, takes takes some, you know, again, education and awareness. And, and farmers need to know that they're going to make money off of them to, to get that, that sort of um, – shift to happen. But I think, you know, when we're looking at almond growers or traditional cattle ranching in the United States, we can learn a lot what from what farmers in, in other parts of the world have done to, you know, save water or figure out better ways to graze animals,
0: etc. Absolutely. One thing that um, we ended up doing in our nonprofit during the drought is we started cooking more cactus recipes in our classes oh, wow. um, because we thought, what a what a resilient crop. And of course, there were students in our programs who were excited to see Nopales because their grandma was nice. growing them in their backyard. Um, and so, you know, it's also part of um, sort of normalizing some food's that other cultures have eaten for a very long time.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. We have so much to learn from them. Can I just take a minute to talk about how impressed I am with what you've done since I first met you? You've really been able to grow your organization. You're such a fantastic leader and and... Uh, advocate. So I, I just need you to know that, like, how impressed and, and what a big fan we are about the work that you do. And I, if there's anything we can ever do to support it, I just think what you're doing is incredible. Oh, I think,
0: thank you so much. That means a lot. Um, it, and it's been really fun. <laughs> um, and and another thing I want to talk about is the food movement in general. Um, because, you know, I have known you for quite some time, and you've gotten to know many organizations across the globe and across our country. Um, I guess my first question is: Is there a food movement, and are we doing yeah. enough?
1: <laughs> I mean, this is a question that comes up at a lot of our events. We um, we had a big summit in New York City in early November, and we had Sam Cass, who worked, um, you know, first as the the chef for the Obamas before they entered the White House, and then he was the White House chef, and then he became um, their nutrition advisor. He's just such a big deal, and and Sam Cass does so many amazing things, but he, he kind of thinks that, you know, the idea that there's a food movement in the United States is, you know, for lack of a better word, BS. He, he doesn't think, you know, in, until the food movement, until we have political power mm-hmm. and political weight, he, he doesn't think that there's much of a movement. And I tend to agree to some extent with that, but I do think that the power of people uh, galvanizing around different issues in food and agriculture and coming together, I think we can be such a powerful force. And and because it's the power of of consumers and it's the power to push political candidates i think if we we could organize in a better way then then we would really be a force to to be reckoned with i just don't think we're there yet and i i i keep hoping you know i think so much of what has happened over the last two decades since you know the early 2000s has you you, you you've seen people you know evolve from buying you know. Going to the farmers market used to be a novelty. Now there are so many farmers markets, thankfully in the United States, that it's become more normalized. And I'm hoping that as you know, people see the value and and knowing where their food comes from, and and you know, exploring different things, that that will turn into hey. But not everyone gets to eat like I do, right? Like, you know, we're we're very lucky. You know, our food is cheap and 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 there's so much of it. But not everyone has that that access and affordability um, that we do. And so maybe that will turn people into into you know better advocates and activists for creating that movement that I think. We're, we're sort of on the precipice of it, but we're not quite there yet.
0: Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with Sam and with you. Um, And I think another piece that I see is that uh, there are so many issues in our food system that need to be addressed. And what's begun to happen is um, people slice off a piece of the gap and they work on it. Um, yep. But there aren't as many sort of cross-sectoral um Projects and programs, and are, do you have any examples of of those that kind of work um, beginning to crop you know who, up?
1: Yeah, who I'm really impressed by is the Heal Food Alliance, where. They're looking at health and they're looking at the economy and the environment and labor and, you know, all of these different issues and really trying to bring them together. I mean, they're, they, for, for the most part, they're focusing on, on workers, farm workers, food workers. But I think that is, is a really powerful organization. One of the things that they do is they train young leaders. And I think that's what's so needed right now. You need to train young people who who can take these issues on? All of the the bad stuff that I feel like my generation and my parents' generation have created. Those the, we need young leaders to 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 fix them. Uh, to, for you know, it, it, it's very simple. Those are the the folks who are going to be able to take these issues on and, and fix them in a creative way. We all have to keep fixing them. But the the power of mobilizing young people, you know, teenagers and people in their early twenties. To, to take lead on these issues, I think, is key. So I'm, I'm a big fan of um, Jose Oliva and Navina Khanna and others who are, um, you know, really leading the Heal Food Alliance to, to take those steps. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Great example. And um, before we go, do you have tips for our listeners about how they can roll up their sleeves and get involved?
1: One of the things that Food Tank put together a few years ago is the Good Food Org Guide and the uh, sort of... Um, idea behind that was wherever you live and, and, you know, no matter what you're interested in, if it's food waste or if it's kids and food or, you know, a, another issue that you could go to this directory and find an organization that spoke to you. And I think that's, you know, it's it's the power of creating community. So if, if you I, I don't want people to feel like they have to sort of fear all these issues on their own. You can join with others uh, to to you know, learn and, and volunteer and, and, and get together and, and help solve some of the issues that, you know, you're most concerned about. So the Good Food Org Guide, you can just Google it. It's available on our website uh, at foodtank.com. But I think that's a valuable resource. And, you know, there are issues that speak to, to lots of different folks in, uh, among the organization's uh, included in the directory. So I, I hope people will find something that, you know, resonates with them and, and reach out to those those local groups who they can work with.
0: Absolutely. And and that website, one more time?
1: It's com, And when you go to um, our site, you can just uh, put in the search engine, uh, good food org guide.
0: And um, because you're stuck at home, what's in your fridge right now?
1: Oh, my gosh, too much food because I, not <laughs> that I'm stockpiling. <laughs> but, but I am a little bit nervous, so. My husband went out the other night and bought like lots of brown rice and and lots of canned beans in case we need them. But we've just like been cooking like because we're both stuck at home. So big lunches, big quinoa bowls, big big salads. It's kind of crazy in there right now. (laughs) I
0: love it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I always enjoy our conversations.
1: Amber, stay well. Keep up the good fight. And thank you for all that you do.
0: I'm so grateful to Danny and her team for the important work that they do at Food Tank. I hope you are as inspired by her as I am. Don't forget to download the Odyssey app to find all our Raising Kale episodes. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe to it, rate it, and share it. It all helps us keep these inspiring stories coming your way. Next time on Raising Kale, I speak with the renowned food blogger David Leibovitz. He shares his journey from washing dishes in a strip mall steakhouse to living in Paris. He teaches me the true history of the niçoise salad. Hint, they don't use potatoes. Next time on Raising Kale.